Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. My name is Samir Rahim and I work at Prospect. Today, I have the great pleasure to be talking to the writer George Saunders about the Russian short story. George won the Broca Prize in 2017 for his wonderful novel Lincoln in the Bardo. And his new book is a non-fiction account of his experiences teaching the Russian short story to creative writing students. His new book is called A Swim in the Pond in the Rain. What for George begins as a study on the technical merits of the likes of Chekhov, Tolstoy and Gogol soon turned into a broad rumination on the purpose of fiction and the meaning of life. George Saunders, absolutely wonderful to have you on the, the Prospect interview. Welcome. Very um, nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, so the subtitle of your new book, uh, which is called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, that's the main title, but the subtitle is In Which Four Russians Give Us a Masterclass in Writing and Life. Could you just to set things up for everyone, tell us who those dead Russians are and why then? Sure. Uh, it's basically uh, Turgenev. Chekhov, uh, Gogol, and Tolstoy. And um, th this book came out of a class I've taught for 20 years at Syracuse where we, you know, there's many more Russians involved. Uh, but these were just kind of the seven stories that over the years have taught the best. So it just turned out to be those four writers and it's uh, a little more Chekhov than anybody else. And um, yeah, so it was really just the stories that when I, when I grouped them in a, a group of seven, uh, it kind of made a nice sequential narrative about the, about the short story form. And you include the short stories within the within the book itself, and then you sort of do a do a running commentary on them, which made me think there should be more books like this because it was um, uh, a fascinating experience to, to read the story and then and then have all the discussion about it later. Yeah, you know, I had such a good time writing it, and it was partly because in that format you could be really frank about the way that fiction actually works. Um, you know, sometimes we talk sort of grandly or thematically about stories, but. In fact, when you pick one up in a magazine or something, you, you know, you're deciding at every instant whether to keep going. So for would-be writers, that's a, a pretty interesting uh, entry point just to say, why did I keep writing, you know, reading this thing? Um, where were the moments when I felt thrilled? Where were the moments when I felt kicked out of it? So it's sort of a, I felt like it was kind of a user-friendly approach. And it, it's certainly the one that I use in my, you know, my editing every day. 
So as you say, Chekhov has got three stories out of seven here. And he seems to be, you know, he's the master really of what we think of really as the archetypal short story. But as you say in the book, when you first read him, you weren't so taken with him, were you? No, I was kind of a young, uh, kind of a working class, I would say idiot. And I, I really liked Flash. I liked writers who were kind of showy and, uh, you know, maybe as close to a rock and roll sensibility as you could get. So when I first read Chekhov, I just thought, yeah, it's kind of, the language is kind of plain and uh, it's a lot of old people walking around having issues, you know? And then, uh, as I described in the book, I heard Tobias Wolf read uh, what's called a little trilogy, including the story Gooseberries, which is in the book. And it just blew my mind. It was such a lovely, vibrant entertainment. And you could just feel that the whole room was just in his hands, in Toby's hands and Chekhov's hands. And uh, that was really persuasive to me to see that um, it was every bit as fun as, as any concert I've ever been to. It was uh, charming. And it was, you know, kind of, you know, in the way that literature does, it was getting into your head particularly. It was saying things to you that you thought only you knew. And then you looked up and there was a room full of people laughing along with you or, or being moved along with you. Uh, so that was a real hook. And after that, I thought I'd, if, if there's a problem between me and Chekhov, it's probably on my side of the, of the table. And one of the great thing about the book is that you, you go into how Chekhov, let's take him as an example, first of all, actually constructs his stories. And as you were going through were the things that you learned from him in terms of um, uh, uh, how action follows incidents and um, what you do with plot and you know the technical aspects of, of, of the story that you come to that you analyze so so well yeah I, I think what I say to my students and I've said this for 20 years is we have to be a little careful when we think about the relation between analyzing a story and writing one it isn't the case that that's a linear relationship where you see something in Chekhov and you take it home and do it in your work. I think it's more mysterious than that. I think it, it sort of seeps into your artistic body in a certain way when you do this close reading. Um, I noticed something really strange after, well, I finished the book probably, you know, really about four or five months ago and my teaching improved. And I think my writing is, it's certainly, I'm, re, I'm being more productive than I was. And I think it's a direct result of looking at these stories technically. Um, the other thing I say in the book is it's kind of, you have to be careful to not make presumptions about how, say, Chekhov did it. I don't really know. I don't think anyone knows. Uh, they didn't do the, you know, interviews and craft talks in those days that we do now. So it was kind of a fine line to say, let's look at what, what happens in the story. Let's look at why mechanically it seems to affect us. And let's be a little bit careful about making assumptions about how that might get into our work, you know? So it's a little bit of a leap of faith to say, you know, if I just dive into this story and take it apart, um, it will in some as yet to be understood way, uh, improve my writing. And I think it also, you know, it has the, the potential to improve your thinking as well in terms of just um, uh, increasing your clarity and your precision of, of observation and then of expression. You write interestingly about how you started off as a as a writer and you were trying to get to the heart of what a short story was. And you, you say that somebody told you that you about your early work that it's fast and funny and wild, but it isn't a story. And that's somewhat frustrating. Yeah. This question, what actually makes a story? What rather than just a series of events is one that keeps on cropping up in the book. 
Yeah, and I think I've you know I've come to the conclusion it's it's one of those things you know it when you see it. It you know it uh, there are so many doorways into that mansion called story, and the minute you start trying to articulate what a story must be or what it is, uh, you sort of underestimate that that palace a little bit. So I think there is a moment where you feel I don't know. To me, it's it's a almost a feeling of rubbing your hands together, like oh this will be good, you know. Um, in the book, I talk about the fact just that a story uh, is really made by right, you know, we call rising action. So it means compounded circumstances or increasing stakes. But I think, you know, in the, in the book, what I'm really doing is taking many, many swings at that question and kind of refusing to uh, define it absolutely. Because as soon as you say a story is only this or a story must be this, somebody's going to come along and use that definition to make something entirely new that is not, you know, uh, that doesn't comply with those definitions. So I, I, I always want to be a little bit, you know, non-doctrinaire about, about the story form. But I do think, you know, sort of in a simple way, the more of them, the more great stories you read, the more you'll, you'll know when your story is starting to move off in the direction of greatness. I think that's true. You know, in the same way that if you, you know, you wanted to be a great uh, rock guitarist, but you never listened to music, you, you wouldn't have any way of knowing what greatness was. Whereas if you'd listened to a bunch of music and you'd done that delicious thing of rating guitarists and hating some and loving others, uh, I think that gets into your DNA in some way so that when you're actually in the task of doing it, you've got all kinds of instincts that you wouldn't otherwise have maybe. And that's really interesting actually. Um, uh, so you can sort of see by, you, you can learn, but learn from these masters, can't you? It, it, in the same way that you can learn from any kind of craft. Oh, absolutely. I think it's the only way, you know, you can't, I think the idea that you can sort of in a vacuum of reading, uh, reinvent the wheel is, is not, it doesn't hold water, you know, and especially someone like me who's come from behind and I, I wasn't really well-trained um, young in, uh, in reading or literature. I was an uh, engineering student. So I know, um, from experience, how important it is to, to, uh, to submit yourself to the work, you know, and now certainly there are kinds of ways to do it. You do it in your first read when you're just having fun. That's a great way. But then uh, to come back and, uh, you know, to use the music analogy to, to learn the chord changes uh, is really important in, in a kind of cellular way. And with these, with these stories, you know, they're very simple, really. They're, I think, especially compared to the contemporary story, they, they're kind of, uh, they usually have some basic moral ethical concern they're, they're structurally pretty simple. So I think it's a great way for a writer to go back to basics. And that's kind of what I was doing. I, you know, I'd had Lincoln and the Bardo came out and uh, I did a lot of traveling for that. And then at some point I thought I have to kind of force myself to remember what I love about stories. And also I have to admit again, that I actually am a beginner and I, and I don't know how they work. And so what a pleasure, you know, to go for a year and a half, two years and almost read nothing else, but those seven stories. And every day kind of, you know, trudge up to the writing shed and say, okay, now this the next two weeks, we're doing the nose by Gogol. And that's all. And it was really a rich, you know, a rich experience. I find that really interesting because um, as, a, as a fan of your own short stories, six out of the seven of these ones will, will come to the nose a bit later. 
uh, seemed quite firmly in the, you know, the realist tradition, which I hadn't quite thought of you as being in. I mean, in your stories, you know, ghosts appear and strange things happens and we're in theme parks and we're in, you know, Lincoln's son's uh, bardo sort of in between world. But one of the things you brought out so well was that, you know, although a story may be in the realistic style, um, it doesn't. Um, it's not simply much like real life. There's as much sort of selection and emphasis, um, radical shaping, you say, in those stories as there are in even the more outlandish ones. Yeah, you know, any, any story where somebody jumps ahead two years is, you know, is, has violated realism. Um, so I think what I, what I found writing this book was that my loyalties are with cause and effect. I think that's the thing I really love in a story, whether it's got ghosts in it or it's in a, a train station or whatever. The, the idea that a story is a strange little machine that's purposefully and weirdly shaped to emphasize causation. So in, in, my, in my view of the story, and of course there are many views of the story, but in mine, if something happens on the first page, it, it, it has to cause something later. It has to be related to what happens next. Otherwise it's, it makes a strange artistic pattern that's random, which is sort of anti-art. So the basic spine of a story for me is fairly logical in the sense that A causes B causes C causes D. And then um, what I found out when I was a young writer is you have to be careful with that formula because it can become too literal. And then the mystery gets rinsed out of it. So, you know, as in so many things in life, you have a strong position. And if you take it too strongly, you become foolish. So uh, it was interesting to see these stories and, and say, yeah, causation is a big part of what's happening here, but it's not all that's happening. It's sort of causation plus magic, you know, but I, I think that's what, I don't really think about stories in terms of being realist or not. Um, you know, as we're finding out now with the world, who, who would have, you know, if somebody would have described this month, two years ago, it would have seemed like kind of cheesy sci-fi, but here it is, it's happening. So the distinction between realism and say experimental experimental writing has never been interesting to me, but uh, some kind of story that has a causation that's not irrelevant to my real life is kind of what I'm seeking, I guess. And it was interesting you included Gogol's The Nose uh, as a, you know, a story that doesn't seem to have the same sort of causation, cause and effect that um, uh, occurs in the other stories, a story about somebody who loses their nose and somebody else who finds a nose, that same one. And, uh, did you include that as a sort of counterexample to what you've been saying in the rest of the book? Well, I thought that's what I was doing. And then, you know, when you actually get inside that story, it, it's definitely playing by the rule or, or it's sort of, it knows about cause and effect and it knows about traditional story norms. And then it sort of stands them on their head a little bit. So I would say it's like somebody who, uh, you know, has a rock band and, and they start playing atonally you, you know, you every so often you think, why don't you guys play a chord? Uh, you know, you feel the you feel the pressure of the norm behind the weirdness. So, you know, a story that had no no um, made no allusions to cause and effect would just be random typing. You know, it would just be uh, somebody on drugs doing a blog post. Uh, but the nose is actually very aware of of what it should be doing. And in fact, if, you know, as I say in the essay, it's, it's written, the narrator of the story is a purposefully inept narrator who's trying to be a big shot literary guy and failing. So I would say that even though that story is quote unquote weird, uh, in literature, weird always means uh, being very, very aware of the norms 
and then violating them in the interest of telling a greater truth. So now I had more trouble writing about that story using cause and effect because you have to kind of go past the simple analysis of cause and effect and say, here's where Gogol is thwarting cause and effect. Now, why might he be doing that? But it's a great story and it's a lot of fun. There's the other thing, you know, in analyzing stories, you sometimes forget that someone doesn't pick up a story to have a pattern neatly fulfilled. They, they pick it up to have their mind blown and to have a good time for 25 minutes or something. And you talk in the book about, as well about being uh, an early fan of Hemingway and wanting to write like him in, in your early days, but then you sort of had to abandon that voice and find a voice that was more your own. And it, it's almost like you had to sort of fine tune something that was part of yourself. Is there, is there a sense in which mm-hmm. any, any writer has to, has to go through, put on different sets of clothes as it were, until they find the one that, that fits them best? I think so, yes, because you know there, there's the the world of received knowledge from books, which is so wonderful, and then alongside that, you're you're receiving knowledge from your actual life. And in my case, I wasn't finding too much intersection between uh, the worlds I saw in literature and the one I was living in, which at that time was you know living in Amarillo, Texas, and uh, our family had had was having some financial hard times, and there's lots of difficulties, you know. So. Um, it's a real aha moment when you say, oh yeah, so literature is not me imitating other forms or earlier writers, even though I love them. It's me uh, having a direct relation with the universe through language. And that might be a little strange, you know, compared to what's come before. In fact, it, it would be good if it was, because it would be reflecting your actual life, you know, the, the um, actual humiliations and embarrassments and triumphs that you are having on the actual scale that they're being had. And that's a, that's a, that's a tough leap, especially I, I suppose for people who are coming from a place where there's that, there's that lack of intersection between literature and real life. So for me, it was kind of just, I mean, this all sounds kind of fancy, but really it was just that I had never been funny on the page before. Uh, and I didn't think Hemingway was very funny. And uh, so the first time that I was funny, I, it was coming out of uh, my social habit which was to be funny all the time or try to. So that was kind of an, in some ways an obvious thing, but it hadn't been obvious to me until then. And boy, the, you know, so many doors just flew open. And then you finally say, you know, I actually find life kind of funny. I find it comic. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think most writers have some version of that where they've been sort of stuck in a kind of obeisance to what they've read before. So you're trying to make your life uh, you know, sound like Dickens or your life sound like your life sound like Toni Morrison or whoever. And there's always going to be kind of a resistance because your life was not that life. And so the relaxing into your actual experience is what makes style, but it's, you know, easier said than done, of course. In terms of your own fictional technique, I mean, we, we can't ask the Russians because they're dead, but we can ask, we can ask you, um, what is it, um, what do you start with? You know, if you have a, is it, is it image, a word or a, a plot unfolds or just an idea? How, how does it go for you? Yeah, well, it's different all the time. But for me, the best thing is uh, a couple sentences that I like the sound of, but I'm not sure what they're about. You know, I'm not sure where the, what the world is. I'm, I just like the sound of the language, a tone. And um, it's hard to get because, you know, you're always walking around the house, you know, thinking of ideas and I think they can get in your way. So if I can come up with a sense or two that are striking to me, and then I kind of almost like, I don't know, like farm those sentences. You, you write those down and you tr- adjust them internally so they sound even better. 
And then at some point they start to give off little, little tendrils, you know, that you, you, you mentioned somebody named Bryce and then you have to then pick up Bryce in the next sentence, or uh, there's some kind of tension made in those two sentences that produces a third. But in the best case, it's kind of organic. And I'm, I'm not really thinking about, you know, certainly not the ending of the story or the themes or any of that. It's just kind of a, a process of trying to like those particular sentences better. And then they expand outwards. And soon you've got a, a room, you know, or you've got a, somebody with a desire or somebody with an unhappiness. Those have been the most fun stories to me to write because they literally come out of nothing. They just come out of some, I guess, neurological preference, really. Uh, and then on the other end of the scale, like with the Lincoln book, I had a pretty real simple three or four point outline. You know, Lincoln comes to the graveyard, holds his, his son's body and leaves. But then within that structure, it's the same thing. It's like, I, I need the scene where Lincoln enters the crypt let me start off with a sentence. And of course, as you said, that's also often an image. You know, you're, you're, something comes into your head and you, and you come up with the simplest possible sentence to describe it. But what I try to say in the book is that it's maybe the overriding principle is that a writer is, is safest or happiest in the zone where she has a strong opinion about something. And it might be she has a really strong opinion about images. These images she wants in her stories, these she doesn't. It might be she has a strong idea about language or about plot. It, I don't think it really matters. I think it's just the, um, and we and all writers have had this feeling of trying to navigate a story about which you didn't care, you know, where you hadn't found a way to have a strong opinion. That's my definition of hell, you know, to try to make 17 pages without an opinion. So what I try to tell my students is you don't have to do it my way, of course. Um, I'm modeling my way for you. But what you really want to do is, is be honest and frank and even a little bit maybe unintellectual in the moment of saying, what, what really gets me excited in writing? Why did I get into this in the first place? You know, what, what's, the, what's the element of fiction about which I'm never unsure? You know, almost like a fish taking the bait. It, it doesn't think about it. It just takes it. So I think that's the, maybe the biggest principles. It should be somewhat joyful, not necessarily ecstatic, you know, or, or, or happy, but it should be kind of compelling uh, to be making prose. So for me, the trick was to steer myself into the area, or still is the trick, steer myself into the area about which I have strong opinions. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. 
Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And you've been teaching, you said you were teaching this course and you have students over many years. Have you been surprised by the students who come to your class and aspiring creative writers and, and who makes it and, and who doesn't? And whether that's just a mere matter of talent or whether it's there's some other quality um, that you think necessary to become a, a great or even just a good writer? That's, that's such an interesting question. I, I, I have noticed something and I, I'm kind of hesitant to say it, but there's a quality of, well, ambition, but it's also kind of a, um, let's see, how would I say it? The people who go on to publish, they're not always, uh, they're the ones who really want to publish. And I would include myself in that category. You know, I didn't really have much focus in my early life, except I really wanted to get a, a story in a magazine or, or, you know, a book. So there's a quality of, of um, uh, I don't know how to say it. It, it. it sounds like a negative quality, but it isn't. It's kind of like a ruthlessness or a, a mad desire to figure out what it takes to make a good story. Sometimes those people aren't, you know, like in my case, I wasn't that well read. I wasn't particularly intellectually um, uh, broad shouldered, but I had that kind of feeling like nothing else matters to me except trying to figure out how to compel a reader. So those people are the ones who tend to get published. You can't always tell who they are when they're in your class. That's for sure. And they're often not the ones who have the most interesting things to say in class, although sometimes they are. So it's, it's really hard to predict. And one of the, the principles I started teaching by early on was forget about that. Like don't, just treat everybody in there as if they're potentially a great novelist, but also remember that there are people in there who are wonderful people who will never publish. And we have to assume that all this reading of stories and loving of stories and analyzing of stories is good for everybody. Not just, it's not just a tool we wanna to use to get published. So when I look out on a classroom, I'm trying to say, well, none of us knows what's going to become of any of you. You know, one of you could become a great novelist and have a terrible life. One of you could fail miserably at writing and suffer and turn out to have the most beautiful life. So let's not worry about that. Let's just really try to get into the task of, of you know, letting our mind relate to Tolstoy's mind. And let's just trust that that's going to be good for us, no matter what happens uh, with your own writing. And that seems to make a nice atmosphere where, you know, some of my, my best moments of my life have been when, you know, some, sometimes when you go into a class as a teacher, you feel like you're about to do a performance and you're a little nervous and you have your notes all arranged and you hope it goes well. In the best case, that moment uh, transforms into a group project where suddenly everybody is hot on the trail of Tolstoy's approach, you know, and people are shouting out or, you know, sometimes shouting out ideas and there's a kind of a, a, the, the feeling of a whole group of people becoming one person and, and going off in, in search of this really, you know, mysterious thing that that's beautiful. And I don't really know why it's good for people or, you know, how, how it plays out in the long run, but that's the moment uh, I'm trying to get to in the classroom and, you know, the publishing happens or doesn't, but after 20 years of this, I can see that it doesn't seem to be related to any particular quality in, in a student. And, um, yeah, it's it's a mystery. <laughs> there is that indefinable quality, isn't there? And I think maybe 
the Chekhov and Tolstoy, you see it perhaps most, although they're very different characters, that sense of intense compassion, certainly Chekhov has for his characters that is exuded throughout, but somehow he sort of doesn't bring himself into the story, while sort of in a, in a way Tolstoy brings his whole mm. large personality and all the contradiction to it. But they still, in a way, their characters always surprise the author in some ways. You never feel that they're under the thumb of the author. That's exactly right. Beautifully said. Yeah. And, you know, for me, the interesting thing about this book was to try to say, okay, so we feel that that compassion, as you called it. How does it how does that work technically? You know, okay, so if, if Tolstoy and Chekhov were just ex exemplary human beings, which I think, or certainly exceptional human beings, okay, but then how can, what can us, we mortals learn from them? And it was interesting to see that many of the effects that we would call compassionate, you know, uh, are actually, they're technical. Uh, you know, Tolstoy will move around between three or four characters' thoughts in a way that just seems godlike. And then when you really break it down, you see one of the things he's doing is he's not telling us much once he gets in those heads. It's, he's, he's saying some very basic things in those, from those four consciousnesses, but it kind of fools the eye into thinking that this is God narrating. You know, or Chekhov will have structural ways of uh, sort of asking, well, is there anything else we should think about? Or, you know, it's sort of like what I call on, other hand, on the other hand thinking, where Chekhov will put out a position through the uh, perspective of one character. And it seems pretty true and pretty solid and we're with it. And then he'll run around to the other side of the table and present an opposing or complicating viewpoint. That move feels like God writing, you know? So it, it's, it was interesting to sort of say these spiritual appearances or, or moral ethical appearances uh, must have a technical basis. And in fact, they do, you know, and now for someone to, <laughs> what, what amazes me is that someone could come up with those technical approaches. Uh, and of course they did it, I think, because they were amazing people searching for truth. So if, if Chekhov utters something that seems false to himself, he doesn't like it. And he finds a structural way to sort of self-challenge, I guess. <laughs> And the other way is perhaps putting opinions that you very strongly agree with in the mouths of characters who you then raise doubts about. Uh, um, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, and speaking about almost the opposite um, uh, of that, maybe opinions you disagree with in the, in, in the mouths of people you like. Uh, I recall that you did, you wrote a, a piece at the New Yorker talking to people who support Donald Trump. Um, and that was, um, a really fascinating piece, I thought, because not many writers were going out there and, and talking to people who seem to, um, you know, be anathema to um, the kind of people who read The New Yorker or Prospect or, or, or whatever. Um, and do you think that, you know, fiction and fiction writers in general have, wouldn't say responsibility, but, but it's, it's an interesting thing for them to do to try and look at the kind of people who are uh, seem to be beyond the pale and, and, and work out what, what makes them tick and why they make the decisions that they do? I think it's really important because that's sort of, by my understanding, the whole uh, game of literature is to say, I'm stuck in a limited mind and a limited set of experiences. That's bad. You know, that's, that's puts me in harm's way. So therefore I'm going to try to uh, broaden my view of things. And literature is one way. If we, if we're reading a story, we find out about people unlike ourselves. Uh, and certainly we, 
if we're writing a story, we have to get a little bit outside of our own head and get out into the world a bit. So I think, yeah, I think it's um, uh, one of the dangers of the current moment, I think, is that so much of our storytelling is happening through social media. And we don't think of it as storytelling, but it really is. And, and it's people are spending a lot of time uh, reading very short stories that are very stupid and that are very, uh, you know, they, they haven't been considered by anybody. They're just sort of barfed out into the world. Um, and of course, we know these algorithms are shaping which stories we're hearing. So we're becoming the opposite of literary people, more convinced of our own viewpoint uh, with a much shallower, boring version of the other person's viewpoint. So I think to disrupt that is really important um, because otherwise the, the, whole, the whole game of being a human being uh, gets compromised. You know, if, if, if 50 years from now, being a human being is simply occupying a partisan position that you get up every day and you strengthen. And then your response to people outside of your circle is more violent and dismissive Then we're in a lot of trouble. So I think, you know, this book, I started it kind of just, I guess, selfishly and modestly, I just wanted to get back to the, the wellspring of the short story and then to be writing it during the Trump presidency and then during the pandemic, uh, it made me think of that in some ways, maybe culturally, we've underestimated the value of, of the, the literary short story, uh, which at least over here has come to be a little bit of a niche property, you know, kind of like 1920s jazz, you know, it's just a, uh, something for a small group of people to obsess over. But really, you know, the, the, the act of receiving a story, the act of telling a story is pretty much what the brain is doing 24-7. And the extent to which we refine our ability to tell and receive a story actually makes us more uh, complete human beings. And it does make us more compassionate and more empathetic. It also makes us less susceptible to BS. Um, so I, it was fun to kind of go in in this very micro way and say, all right, why, why do I like page six of this Chekhov story? And to really sit there and try to figure it out and then try to write it in an, an intelligible way. It made me feel like it was actually a, the fundamental um, human activity um, and just sort of you know, modeled in, in this very small way that lets us sort of look at our mind reading a story in a, in a quiet uh, moment. But, but that mind is doing that story reading all the time. George Saunders, thank you so much. Samir, thank you, it's been a pleasure. And that's all from us. Thank you very much for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Goodbye, stay safe, and see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.